It's Jennifer Diane Ghostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. A part of my identity is being an adoptee, being separated at birth from my original family and placed into foster care for two years before being adopted. I recognize the added value adoptees bring to a conversation about adoption. You, the listening audience, will have the opportunity through episodes in this podcast to learn, dissect, and grapple with some of the issues involving those of us separated from our biological family. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience. Wherever you are on the path of healing, wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? While I continue to record my podcast remotely in Chicago during my extended stay here, I apologize for any and all of the sound quality that is different or less than you have come to expect from me. I trust that it will not impede your ability to clearly understand the conversation. Thank you for being here. My guest today is a biracial, third-generation Japanese-American adoptee and the author of her memoir, I Would Meet You Anywhere, a creative nonfiction body of work released three days ago during National Adoption Awareness Month. Her name is Susan Ito. We met in person several years ago at an Adoption Constellation conference and stayed connected since then through social media. Sometime around 2016, she gave her support of me, becoming a published author. She purchased my book, read it immediately, and even posted on Facebook to tell others about it. She is one of the kindest, supportive, and generous adoptees I know. Susan co-edited the literary anthology, A Ghost at Heart's Edge, Stories and Poems of Adoption. Her work has appeared in The Writer, Growing Up Asian American, Choice, Hip Mama, Literary Mama, Catapult, Hyphen, The Bellevue Literary Review, and elsewhere. Her theatrical adaption of Untold, Stories of Reproductive Stigma was produced at Brava Theater. Susan and I recently got together as panelists for Adoption Mosaic, founded by Astrid Castro, to discuss the topic of being same or perceived same race adoptees. Astrid and her team created an insightful, interesting, and enjoyable experience for all of us in attendance via Zoom. I especially enjoyed hearing Susan's thoughtful answers to all of the questions asked of her that day. During this episode, she and I hope to really pique your interest in her memoir. She shares memories of being in reunion with her biological mother as early as 20 years old. The twists and turns as a result of that relationship for over four decades had me on the edge of my seat and quickly turning the pages. Allow me to introduce you to a creative writer who uses her words and voice to advocate for all adoptees. I picture the mic dropping each time she takes center stage. She is no stranger to being around other members of the constellation. 
her willingness to contribute a wealth of information so we can all think a little bit deeper about the subject of relinquishment and adoption is truly a beautiful gift. Susan, it is my absolute honor to have this conversation with you today, and I think my listeners are going to be in for a real treat, a real rich conversation between us, because I have finished your book, your wonderful book, I Would Meet You Anywhere, and it's so well done, and I I think that's really where I want to start. Well, no, I want to start with how are you doing on the West Coast, the best coast? You're in the Bay Area, right? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm in California. And it's such an honor to be here with you, Jennifer. I and a pleasure. I'm just so excited to have this conversation. Yes, we're gonna have a good time. There's so much in your book that just resonated with me, ups and downs and all the heartbreak. And then there's some really high and extraordinarily wonderful moments that you share with the reader. So congratulations on writing and publishing it. So I know you are from New York State, born in New York State, and you uh, grew up in New Jersey. I'm thinking before we dig deep into the the book and and your process and, and what it means to you to be on the other side of it, why don't you share a little bit about your adoption journey, wherever you want to start? Hmm. It's hard to know where to start it, but I think I'll start with, yes, I was born in New York State. I spent some time in foster care, about six weeks. I first spent some time in the hospital because I was premature and underweight. And then I went to foster care. And then I was adopted by my parents when I was about four months old. I think it starts there. Um, I mean, it starts, yeah, being born. But then then I grew up with my parents in New Jersey. I was an only child. I am a biracial Japanese and European-American. And my parents are both second-generation Japanese-Americans. So I think that makes my experience a little bit different from a lot of other adoptees. And it's something that, yeah, I think really marks my experience in a lot of ways. It had a big impact on me. I recently learned, I didn't know you had done a a solo play uh, mm. about your, your journey as an adoptee. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about that. Sure. Well, it started when I, I used to be the director of a family camp for adoptive families with children of color. It was an organization called PACT. And I ran this camp and I had heard about a performer who was an adoptee named Lisa Marie Rollins. And she came to camp and she performed her solo performance show called Ungrateful Daughter. And I remember sitting in the audience and I was absolutely riveted. Like, what is she doing? It wasn't, she wasn't like storytelling or telling stand-up or she was embodying her experience. Like she has a scene where her mother is combing her hair and she's 
black and her her mother her parents were white and her mother was just having difficulty dealing with her hair and she's sitting there playing the part of her mother and also playing the part of herself and i was so riveted is the only way word i can think of so i ran up to her how did you learn to do that what is it and how can i learn to do it too (laughs) and she said oh i'm taking a class called Solo Performance Workshop with W. Kamau Bell, um, who at that point was not the famous person he is now. And I I found it immediately, or she sent me the information. I signed up, and I ended up staying in that workshop for probably at least four or five years. And I developed my show, The Ice Cream Gene, with his help and then with the help of Martha Reinberg, who took it over from him. And it was an amazing experience to like literally embody my story. And like a lot of scenes that are in the book, I mean, it opens with me in the hotel hallway, counting the doors and finding the door and she's on the other side. And and that's where I get the, the title is, you know, I, I had this little rhyme, I meet you in a box, I would meet you with a box, <laughs> I would meet you anywhere. Yeah, and so I, I act that out in the in the in the show, and it was an amazing experience to do it physically on a stage, and to kind of relive a lot of these scenes, and it I think gave me the courage to then really go back and develop it into the book, into the memoir. Yeah, I wish I could have seen that. I bet it was wonderful. It was something else. I have a. I'll send you a video. I have a video. Oh, good. Uh, Thank you. I have a video of one of them. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was an incredible experience to do that. And I was just saying, saying to somebody, you know, I really, I got so much out of doing that and bringing it to audiences, but I felt like it was very, in a way, even though it was very vulnerable, it was also very safe because I'm like, okay, I'm doing this for the 200 people in this room, but it never left the room. Do you know what I mean? It was just, it was just the, the audience that I had. And with this book, it's like, I don't know who's reading it. I don't know where it's going. I don't know. I you know, know what I mean? Like, the fact that the story is like out in the world and people are starting to let me know that they've gotten their copy. It's really, it's a totally different experience. It's both very exciting and very scary. Mm-hmm. I have a lot less control over this than I did when I was doing solo performance. Like I could see my audience, you know, I could see their faces. Right. And I knew that the only people who were getting this story were people in the room with me. And it's just not, it's not that way with this. You were getting immediate feedback that you, yeah, you're not getting with the book. I know what you mean. Yeah. And also a sense of control over audience in a way. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, it, it, it's, very different experience, but related, I think. Okay. It's, it, was just, it was my first step in getting my story out there and being public with it. 20 years ago, I published this anthology, um, A Ghost at Heart's Edge, and it was a compilation of stories and poems about adoption. And I was very careful in that to not include anything about my own story. I was too scared to do that 20 years ago. I wrote a poem about... Albert Einstein's daughter who was given up for adoption and I wrote a short story based on something else but none of it had 
anything to do with my own personal story. So I feel like, yeah, I think I've come a long way since then because I was just, I was too scared to share my story at that point. And for the audience, I just want them to know that we met in person many years ago at a Adoption Constellation Conference, the AAC. And it was at that time, I believe, I want to say around 2015, that you Mm -hmm. got my book. I can still see the smile, your beautiful smile in support of me and reading it right away. And I think even you sent me a picture and like, I just appreciate it so much as I do to this day, your support. I think you're one of the most supportive people that I know when it comes to adoptees and their work and the their books and the things that they're doing in the community. So I, I wanted to thank you for that. Well, I want to thank you for putting your story out in the world because I feel like it's so important for adoptees to own our own narratives and to share them and to show everyone just the incredible variety and uniqueness of all of our stories. And I would learn that you met Pamela Hasegawa Mm -hmm. uh, early on, right, at an ALMA meeting. And I thought, that is so interesting because Pam spent some time, many years, I think, in Japan And her husband is Japanese. So I thought, Mm -hmm. isn't that like a synchronicity? What do you think about that? Well, I really bonded with her right away. One, because she was such a warm and supportive person. And two, because of her connection, you know, her children are half Japanese as I am. And just that connection really, really meant a lot to me. And she's such a fierce activist and advocate. And I, I looked up to her so much. I still do. I looked up to her so much, just felt such a, such a connection with her. And I will always be grateful to her. She really took me in under her wing when I was 18 years old. It was my first sense of being in community with other adoptees. And she really, really took care of me. Yes. She's a beautiful person. And, and she, has been a guest on here and and I just feel honored to know her and yes I used to see her quite regularly at the conferences through the years and even participated in one of her workshops I was yeah I was just so happy to do that and just to be around her and in community with her just wanted to give a shout out to Pamela and to know that she was there for you at such a young age makes me smile. So that's good to know. And I guess we can just dig right into things in your book that really spoke to me that I thought were so meaningful. I'm going to go to a subject that is about saying goodbye. It is on page 84. So you're in reunion with your birth mother at a very young age. And you write here, Yumi, your birth mom, rummaged in her purse, and for a second I wondered if she was looking for something to give me, a keepsake. But instead, she pulled out her boarding pass. She was leaving. Leaving? She was satisfied that I was with good people, nice Japanese people. And you go on to say, she was leaving me to be with her children. Can you describe for me, when you have to say goodbye, 
in that moment? What else were you feeling? Wow. Well, I mean, I think in that moment, I mean, that was the one time that I was with her and my adoptive parents together. So that was huge. That was a big moment. Yeah. And then the fact that it was Mother's Day, which is, of course, very symbolic and significant. And she was like, well, I have to go because my children want me to spend Mother's Day with them. And I just like I, I didn't know what to do with that. Do you know what I mean? I, I it was and I feel like I was just overwhelmed by grief and loss. And I think it was like a reenactment of her leaving the first time. Right. You know, but it was like now I'm an adult. I have the cognitive ability to understand what's happening as well as the physical and emotional reaction. And I think it just it just slammed me. It, it, and, it, and I just didn't expect and she was literally like leaving me with my parents, you know, and right. she was going to go and continue her life. And that was exactly what happened at the first time. But just having the cognitive awareness of what was happening, it, it was really, really overwhelming. And I wasn't expecting it, you know, but it it was one of those moments that just it just shattered me. Yeah, you capture so many of those kinds of moments. Like I felt it in your words. Mm-hmm. Even when you talk about your given name at birth mm-hmm. and learning that that same name was given to a sibling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you really express that. And I don't definitely don't want to give too much away. I, I just want to pique the reader's interest because you do such a wonderful job in describing all these different kinds of moments that I was, you know, like, I was like, oh no, you know, like, oh my goodness. <laughs> I, you know, I felt it like it was happening to me. Because yeah. it resonated with me, right? The, the way I would feel. Uh, my name given at birth was Bonnie. And if I was to learn that my birth mother gave her next child that name, yeah, it would, it, it's, it, I'm just feeling it right now. Uh-huh. I know you know. Well, a little... that's very validating for me, Jennifer. It's really <laughs> validating because I'm like, I don't know. Was that unreasonable? It's like, I get, I mean, she basically said, well, I knew you weren't going to keep that name anyway. She knew that I was going to be given a new name upon my adoption. And so, you know, there's like a logical reason for it. But I think hearing you say that you would emotionally respond the same way is very validating. The Thank you. same exact way. Absolutely. I I would. And I never even thought about that, right? Like I, like I would just be like, who does that? I, I remember reading that and saying that. I just didn't, didn't like it. Let's put it like that. And there were things that your birth mother did that I did like. And I liked mm. how you described how she was so well put together. And I pictured that. And how you kind of compared her. What I ended up doing, reading your words, is putting myself in your shoes and thinking about things in the way that you were thinking about things. And, I'm, and right now, what comes to mind is my biological mother was deceased when I learned of her identity, and yet I have come to know her through my brother and extended family members, 
And so now I have been thinking, okay, what would my adoptive mom and my birth mom do, right? Like they would be so different. (laughs) And I had never really thought about that. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm glad you did that. I'm glad you, you shared that. Another thing that was really meaningful to me had to do with how you looked at her legs. Mm. Yes. And I, I only have one picture of my birth mother and her legs. Well, I actually have two, but, but the one that stands out to me the most is in adulthood because the other picture I have is her as a teenager. But in adulthood, well into adulthood, I have this picture and I remember staring at her thighs in the picture and saying, yeah, those mm. are my thighs. So I, I just chuckled. Wow, wow. Yeah, because yeah. you're right. Her body was wrapped in a thick white towel I stared at her legs. They were my legs. It was the first time I had seen their shape on another human being, muscular, with sturdy thighs and a familiar curve of calf. Her ankles were my ankles. Her feet as wide and flat as my own. I love Mm -hmm. that paragraph, yes. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about your Aunt Elizabeth. It was towards the end of that chapter where I cried because she just was a beautiful human being towards you when you discovered her from DNA. So is there anything you want to share about that? (laughs) I'm getting emotional. I mean, it was one of the biggest highlights of my life, you know, just to be so welcomed. She just opened arms. I had never experienced that before from biological family. You know, there was just so much secrecy around it. And I think the fact that my aunt was just overjoyed. And I have to say, I think, you know, I've heard from other adoptees that it's easier often for extended family who are not the main players. You know, they're not the mother or the father. They had nothing to do with it. Do you know what I mean? They didn't have anything to do with any decisions that were made or any keeping secrets or anything. They're just there. And I think it allowed her to love me without any ambivalence. And I just felt that, you know, when somebody loves you unconditionally and welcomes you unconditionally, it's it's kind of an overwhelming, it's a beautiful feeling and you don't have it that often in your life. It really it meant so much to me and having that relationship was just, it was truly one of the highlights of my life. And I'm so happy that you experienced that. I know reading that chapter, I just was filled with so much joy for both of you. And, mm. and when you write, and this is what made me tear up, well, I actually cried. It, and you write, it feels cliche to say that two years were better than nothing, but those years were suffused with love. Every interaction echoed, you belong. Knowing my aunt for those two years healed a lifetime of erasure, secrecy, in denial. And and I'm often thinking in reunion, what's possible? And even when, like during the searching, because you search many, many years to find out who your paternal side was, who your biological father was, and, and just heartbreaking that, you know, it took so long. Yes, right? Yeah. 40 years. Yeah. yeah. So, so long. But to have met Aunt Elizabeth, 
it was such a beautiful relationship, even though it was short. So Mm -hmm. I appreciate it reading um, that chapter too. So we can jump right into some questions that that I have for you about writing, right? Like what's the most important thing you've learned writing and publishing your memoir? Well, it started as my MFA thesis, which I graduated in 1994. And in my mind, I thought I was going to take one year to revise it and then it was going to be done. And one of my mentors, advisors had said, you know, I think you're a little close to this story. I think, I think you might need to take a little distance from it. And I was so, I was so mad. (laughs) I was so indignant, but she was right. She was right. I mean, I needed all this time and I need, I was still really in it. I'm still in it. I'll never be not in it. Right. But I was so in the story that I had no way of seeing it as a narrative. And she understood that about me and my writing, but I I didn't understand that. And so I needed to take as long as it took. And I feel like if I had published it then, there would be no Aunt Elizabeth. There would be there would be no a lot of the, the book. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because right. I, I, I hadn't I hadn't gone through it yet. And so and I feel like the arc of the story needed to be what it was. I mean, I feel like that now, mm-hmm. um, but I was, I was in a hurry. And then I, then I got, I was started, right. I wrote it as fiction. Um, I did the solo performance show. It has taken so many different shapes and formats and it took a long time for me to kind of settle and bring all the material into what is now the book. I think one of the most important things I learned was patience and trust, mm. you know, and there were so many times where I had doubt, self-doubt, doubt in the story, doubt that anybody cared. I mean, I, one, of the, one of the words I used to say to beat myself up during this time was pathetic. Like, no one's going to want to read this pathetic story of like, it's just me kind of going, love me, love me, accept me. You know, I just felt, I felt bad about myself and I felt bad about having this need and I felt bad about wanting things that I couldn't have, you know, wanting a relationship to be different than it was. or, And I think it took a long time for me to, I don't know, I think accept myself in the process and accept the story and feel like this is a story that is worthy of, of being told. You know, I think I, I think I had a lot of doubt in the story for a long time mm. and that kept, that kept me from, finishing it and pursuing getting it published. Thank you for I, sharing I that. Yes, because mm. I'm sure there are other writers right now in the middle, towards the end, or maybe at the very beginning, feeling those very same things. Yes. Yeah. I, I, and I think it's been kind of shocking because, you know, the big thing is like when somebody will ask about a story, they'll be like, well, who cares? And I would just ask that of myself and be like, I don't know. I don't know if anybody would care. And since people have started reading it, I'm like, oh, people are interested. <laughs> people do care. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, it's, and it's a little bit shocking to me, but I'm. it's starting to sink in a little bit like, oh, 
<laughs> a little bit, huh? A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. Well, it's only it's a, it's not even really out yet, you know. Right. So I've only had my advanced reach so far, and some people who pre-ordered are starting to get it. But like, I'm starting to get a little feedback that, you know, it was a worthwhile story to tell. It is a worthwhile story to tell, and I didn't. I didn't believe that for a long time. Yeah, it absolutely is. And you just did an amazing job. You did. You really did. And and I know you started off like in in your early adult life being a physical therapist, right? <laughs> yes. And then you said, yes. I'm switching over to creative writing. And I'm so glad you did. I know you were probably a great therapist, but still. <laughs> well, I've gone back and forth. I, I The last time I practiced was probably about eight years ago, and I still have a fondness for that. Mm -hmm. There's something very different about that profession than writing. It's like you couldn't be more opposite. And sometimes, sometimes I really, sometimes I really miss it. Yeah, I'm really glad to. (laughs) I'm really glad. And the interesting thing is, it was physical therapy that pushed me into writing. And I'll say a little. I used to do. My specialty was home health care, where I would go to people's house and do therapy with them in their homes. And the whole goal was to help them become more independent. And people would tell me stories like all the time, right? People feel very comfortable when you go to their home and you're in this intimate environment with them. And they would tell me these stories. And then I would write them on my notes, which we would share with the whole care team. And all the care team was like, oh my gosh, Susan Ito writing like the social personal story of the patient, like background story. Mm-hmm. It's like, these are like short stories. It's like, you should be a writer. And they kept saying this over and over. Like, I love reading Susan's notes because they're like a story. And it kind of sparked something in me. And I started taking writing classes, writing short stories. And that was like the beginning of it. So physical therapy actually inspired me to start writing. Yeah. And then I go... I go back and forth, but I'm, I'm mostly a writer now. I just did renew my license. I can't quite give it up. It's just there, just in case. Right. Oh, I appreciate hearing that. Yeah, that it inspired you. Physical therapy inspired you to move into writing. Yeah, I like that. You want to talk a little bit about your writing process? I know a lot of people ask me that question. So I'm thinking those people who may be interested in in writing, they're just curious to know the different processes that writers go through. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My writing process is extremely undisciplined and often very spontaneous. Like, I don't know if you could tell, but a lot of the scenes that I write about in the book, one of those things would happen especially the the day of the meeting in the hotel room, I like went back and I wrote in my journal immediately. I was like, I cannot forget a minute of what just happened. This is like one of the biggest moments of my life. I went back and I, and I used these notes, my journal to write the book. You know, I went back and I was like, what was going on? And people are like, how can you have so much detail from things that are so long ago? Well, I have notes, right? (laughs) I have notes that were often, written that same day. I have those things to to look back on. So a lot of times something would happen and I would just feel like I need to write that down. I I need to get it out of my system or I need to record it. 
and then later on I would go back and edit it and revise it and things like that. So I had children, I was caregiving for my mother for many years and and then I had various jobs and I didn't have a regular writing practice. Like I didn't have a time when I wrote. So I would do a lot of free writing, journaling, spontaneous writing whenever I could grab a minute. And I'm also a huge fan of residencies, which I love anywhere from a weekend to a month, just focusing on writing. Um, those are like a huge gift. And I've had the opportunity to several times, either DIY ones where I go away with a writer friend, we rent a cabin someplace and just hole up and write, or, you know, kind of gifted residencies have, have been amazing. So I'm either kind of like grabbing little snippets of time when I can, or I'm like fully immersing, like on a residency. It's it's not a very, <laughs> it's not a very organized process, but it's what, it's what I had. Now, did you ever use music? Oh yeah. I love writing with me. I, well, for me, I, I, yes, I always have like a write, I have a writing playlist, but for me, it has to be writing without words, without lyrics, because I get very distracted because a lot of lyrics tell a story and I feel like I can get very distracted by that. So I write to music without words really helps me. I mean, it kind of like gets me in the, gets me in the zone. Right. Any particular time of the day? You know, this book took 30 years to write. And uh, so my time of day has really varied. I remember I went to Hedgebrook, which is a writer's residency in Washington state. We were in these little cottages. After dinner, I would drink coffee and write all night. I was like, what would my normal schedule be like if I just went with what my body wants to do? We've been conditioned that we have to get up and go to, I mean, I think from the time we go to preschool, it's like we're on the schedule of the preschool and then school and then work, right? And I was like, you know, what if I have a month and I could wake up whenever I, what, what, what would my body do? And so I found that I would end up writing all night and I would start writing, you know, at eight o'clock at night and write until like three in the morning, three or four in the morning. And then I would fall asleep and wake up in time for lunch or something. So I don't know. It was, it was really an interesting experiment, but normally my good time is like late morning to mid afternoon. I'm not good at night now. I, I run out of gas around 7 p.m. and I can't do anything after that. Oh, I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> it's me too. Oh, this is just me getting older, I think. Like, I don't think I could do what I did at Hedgebrook 20 years ago. Do you know what I mean? It's right. Like, I, that was a nice experiment when I did it. But like right now, I think, yeah, I it takes me a little while to wake up. You know, by mid-morning, I'm good to go. And then by mid-afternoon, I'm done. That's yeah, my, same that's here. My, that's, my, that's my alert time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I know I get up pretty early, so I kind of know why I'm petering out <laughs> late, mm -hmm. yeah, late afternoon, early evening. But I, I also found that I would sit down and say, I'm going to write for at least 10 minutes. And it would turn yeah. into hours. And so, yeah, like... I really want to share that with any listeners that are writing or thinking about writing. Set a, a small goal, right? Like nothing like I'm going to write from 10 to 12 or whatever. 
just maybe set a timer for 15 minutes, it would surprise me that I would go for hours. And it did not matter what time of day. Sometimes it would be three in the morning. Thank you for sharing some of the things that work for you. And I know that you are a part of On the Page, created by Sarah Easterly, the the writers group. How's that experience been for you so far? It's a group of uh, adoptee writers. I've only been part of it for a couple of months now, but it's just been really a wonderful community. And I like to say that I, I, I love meeting other adoptees because I feel like there's always some point of connection and there's always some thing that we that we have in common that's that's very meaningful. And I love writers because I love the way writers think. And so when I find adoptee writers, I'm especially excited. I feel like it's a it's a very special community and I'm I'm really happy to be sharing experiences with other adoptee writers. Well that leads me to my next question and that is how rewarding and or challenging being better connected to the community. I feel like it's mostly all benefits. I can't think of many downsides. I mean, of course, it feels like a big family to me. And in any family, there are differences and there are, you know, differences of opinion. I tend to be pretty conflict averse. So I try not to get too entangled with things that are, I don't know, moments of conflict. I try to stay away from that. I I mostly feel really connected. I feel really grateful for the adoptees who, like Pam Hasegawa, who have come before me, who have really made space for me and mentored me. Yeah, that, that's that been really meaningful. And I feel really excited about younger adoptees being able to do the same for them. I, I love being part of adoptee community. I do too. I think that it was one of the best decisions I made way back in 2009, attending my first conference in 2011 in Orlando, Florida, and many of those relationships are still very much intact, and I'm still close with so many adoptees through the years, and even like when we maybe lose contact for a while, we pick right back up, as you and I were able to do with Adoption Mosaic and being panelists for the topic of same perceived same race adoptee. It was such a joy to spend that time with you in those meetings and to hear your words about your experience. And I can't say that was enough. an amazing panel. Yeah. That was an amazing panel and big shout out to Astrid. Um, Mosaic. Yeah. Yes. I can't say enough good things about Astrid and what she's doing. So I'm glad mm-hmm. we were a part of that together. Same. I guess in closing, is there anything that you want to share that I didn't ask you? Hmm. I'll probably think of something as soon as we hang up. <laughs> I will too. <laughs> I know I will. It never fails. Um, oh, I do want to say, Jennifer, I loved hearing you read from my book. And I, I just loved, I loved hearing it in your voice and for you to share with me parts of the book that had a particular impact or significance for you. And I really, really appreciated that. That was lovely. Oh, thank you. I, I have tabs all through your book. It's just always so tricky for me when an author has published recently to not give it away. Like I I really want people to read it and it will definitely be a link to your book in the show notes. 
But yeah, I've got so much stuff here that I was like, oh my goodness. Oh, wow. Oh, you know, yeah. I will go through here and see. Yeah. And, and if it's something you would, would like me to read, I'd be happy to. Yeah. Or oh, if you no. want to read. Mean, you, I think you read some of the parts that I would have read. And I loved hearing you read them. No, I think I'll just um, <laughs> encourage listeners to pick it up and to get read a it coffee. for yourself. Yes. I, I think you I think you shared some really enticing tidbits and hopefully it will intrigue listeners so that they'll wanna read it themselves. Yeah. I hope I hope that would be the case. Yeah. I hope and so. And I just I think okay, I'll I'll say one thing. I just really want to encourage other adoptees out there who want to write their story, whether for publication or not. Sometimes it's important for, for so many years, I mean, decades, these were just notes to myself. These were notes that I kept privately and I wasn't sure that they would ever see the light of day. For many years, I thought they wouldn't. It's important for us to have our own narrative and to own our own narrative. And so I just want to give encouragement and support to any adoptees out there who who want to write, to, to just go ahead and do it. Oh, that was wonderful. It's, it's important. And yeah. It's, yeah, it's important to add that, you know, our experiences are so unique. And, you know, my experience is, is not like yours or, or anybody else's, although there are many points of similarity. I, I think it's important that all of our voices and all of our stories get out there. Yes, I, I agree with you totally. And... I guess one thing I I definitely want to say while we're still on this conversation, and that is I'm so happy you got your original birth certificate. And I know New York, Mm. um, yeah, it feels still so recent, right? In 2019, Governor Cuomo signed it into law, right? I got mine in 2020. How did it feel to see see it? I mean, it was interesting because so many years had gone by. I had been looking for this for so long. There were there was not a lot on it that was new information, but it confirmed little details. And just having it in my hands was like, this has been my right all along. And I can't, couldn't believe that I was receiving this at the age of 60. And there are many adoptees who pass away before ever getting to see their birth certificates. And it's, I think it's a crime. I think it's a human rights, civil rights issue that these things are kept from us. These are our vital documents. And the fact that they're only available to adopted people in less than half of the states is terrible. So, yeah, it was a big moment. It was a big moment and a long time coming. And it's something that every adopted person deserves. Yes. And so since you like hearing me read, I'm going to, I think I'm going to end with, with reading your words on page 226 and 227. You say, by now, neither my original name nor my birth mother's name were secrets to me. I had uncovered them long ago. Still, I poured over every detail. I noted that all of the data had been filled in by typewriter except my own original name. Someone, my birth mother, had hand-printed Mika on that line. 
I wondered if it had been blank and filled in later. Another mystery. But it was something solid that told me that I had existed. I was real. I had been born. And someone had witnessed it. That gives me chills. So well done, Susan. This has really been a joy. (laughs) (laughs) Having this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jennifer. This has been a wonderful conversation. And I I just really thank you for this opportunity and just the opportunity to connect with you again. I love it. I appreciated Susan sharing how she transitioned into creative writing after receiving positive feedback about her storytelling abilities during her career as a physical therapist. It's interesting how one path can lead to the unfolding of another one because of our natural God-given talents. I've heard other adoptees describe being in the same room with both birth and adoptive parents together and feeling overwhelmed by the experience. When Susan describes in her book a memory of saying goodbye to her first mother after a family gathering, I imagined it being a reminder to her of the first goodbye between the two of them after her birth. It can be hard to manage the emotional ride or rides, as in Susan's experience, with a biological parent who didn't get to raise you. I relate to how a writing process can look many different ways for a writer. There is no one right or set way to get things out of our head and simply write. Remember, when you sit down and write, you are a writer. And it can take years, decades even, to get to the point of publication. As Susan stated, the timing of birthing her book took a while so she could include all of the characters, events, and moments that were meaningful to her. It can be scary to have intimate or personal information out in the world where you have no idea how it's being received by the public. I totally get it. Published authors trust that their hard work will be met with a degree of appreciation after having been vulnerable with the telling of their story. This is what I know. I've heard it said in subject and not verbatim that at the end of a person's life, any regrets are not over what they have done, but what they've left undone. Like Susan, I enjoy meeting other adoptees, and I'm especially excited about adoptee writers because of the way they think. Once you come to know a part of Susan's life through her words, it is likely to resonate with your own story. When it comes to life being filled with highs and sometimes unbearable lows, we can, and many of us do, come out on the other side of any turbulent times and reach for what's possible with family connections. It is the ebb and flow of life in all matters. Thank you, Susan, for having this conversation with me. I knew it would be abundant with you sharing some of your experiences in the adoption community because of your longevity. It's adoptees like you who have been connected for decades that have so much wisdom to offer all of us You really show up for adoptees by cheering us on and supporting our endeavors. I agree with you that if an adoptee wants to write their story, it's important. It's significant for us to have and own 
our narrative. I lovingly encourage adoptee writers all over the world to go on and do it. Your story is worthy of being told by you. If you're an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, visit JenniferDianeGhostin.com. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give, hopefully, a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I trust you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is still the very best way for the show to grow. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a monthly donation of at least $5 or a one-time amount that works for you at patreon.com forward slash adopteeland. Thank you for being here.